Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Story Podcast. It is a late night here in the offices of Story. I am here with Sammy Harvey, and uh, we're here for another episode. We are, and it looks like you're drinking a Coke. I never drink Coke. So get this, I was on a flight the other day, I don't remember where from or to, uh, and the flight attendant came up and said, can I get you anything to drink? And I was like, can I have a, a Coke? Do they make those still? Yeah. Can I have a Coke? <laughs> and she was like, you're asking kind of funny. She like, calm, I forgot about, how, well, I don't know what my tone was, but she yeah. obviously thought it was weird the way I asked. And uh, I was like, I just haven't had one in like, I don't know, like a year or something, because it's not something I drink. Yeah. And she goes... You've never had a Coke? <laughs> and, uh, of course, totally like they, misinterpreted They that. fill up my glass, and I drink it all. She comes back to check on me later. And she's like, do you want a refill? Like, <laughs> smiling. And I was like, yeah, actually, I do. Uh, and she goes, this is how it starts, you know? It's like, I'm totally... Oh, she's so like, true. you're going to become a... But I haven't had one since that flight. That was a couple weeks ago. And I'm drinking this one because I felt like I was going to pass out earlier. Yeah. You ever that feeling where, like, you're so tired? I don't know if your body needs, like, sugar or something. That's how I felt. I was like... I felt like I've been drugged, like my eyelids were starting totally. to Totally. You just feel like kind of delusional. So yeah. I got my hands on one of these. This is vanilla Coke. Then I've not had that before. Uh, I'm okay with not having <laughs> it right now. <laughs> um, yeah, this is vanilla Coke. It's I haven't, I haven't drank enough Coca-Cola to say this is better than Coca-Cola. Yeah. I can't. I'm not a Coke connoisseur. But <laughs> I'm drinking it because it's late, and I leave tomorrow for Alaska. You just got back from San Diego. I did. You've been traveling as much as I have lately. And I you, think so, which is really soon. impressive because I feel like you travel a lot. Yes, I do travel a lot. But the fact that you're keeping up with me is like pretty Giving impressive. Giving you a run yeah. for your money, yeah. Yeah, it's a lot. So <laughs> we are here late night recording so we can pull this off because this is a very, very important episode to me. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Micah was one of my favorite people that I met at Story Gathering. Honestly, it was just yeah. one of my favorite sessions in general, the session that he was in, session two. Yeah, I don't know too. if we've had a chance to... Have we? I don't think we really even talked about that session since no, Story. we haven't. Um, yeah, Micah was one of the speakers in session two. Where we, they've heard us talk about that Disney quote a thousand times, but that was the point in the conversation at Story this year where we began asking that question about what needs to be restored, what kind of order needs to be yeah. restored. For those of you who don't know and don't have it memorized yet, the quote that guided us this past year at Story was a Walt Disney quote where he said, that's what we storytellers do. We restore order with imagination and instill hope again and again and again. And we thought if we're going to have a conversation about the role that imagination plays, if imagination is used to restore order, we can't do a conference without asking what needs to be restored. Obviously, one of the things that feels very broken, gosh, it feels like a lot of things are broken about our country right now. There's just so much hate out there. But one of the things that is very obviously broken is the way that we are treating each other uh, just because of different skin colors. There's mm-hmm. a lot of injustices out there still taking place. And I remember calling Micah, gosh, months ago in the planning, and it was right after, uh, I think it was Alton Brown, and then it was the next day it was Castile, I think was mm-hmm. that his name. Um, and I just remember feeling it was like a combination of angry and confusion, kind of yeah. this like, I don't know what to do. I yeah. just feel this like righteous anger and I feel the need to do something, but I'm at a loss because I don't know what to do. Yeah. You don't know what's the next right step. Yeah. yeah. And it was How to a, respond. And I knew one of the first next steps was to call some of my black friends and just say, I'm so sorry. Mm-hmm. Like I'm standing with you right now. And second, I feel like I need some advice, but I don't really want to like call and ask you for advice right now because I know you're angry and confused yeah. too. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah, and it's not your it's not a person of color's responsibility to explain exactly that. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So Mike has been very gracious with me because I've I've gone into so many of our conversations with that awareness. And I've been like, Hey, I know I'm not supposed to like ask you advice and it's not your responsibility, but I could really use some advice right now. Yeah. Uh, and he's just been this really responsive and kind of a friend to both me and to story and saying, yeah, man, let's talk about this. He's never shied away from any of those conversations and his perspective has been really powerful. And so we talked about a lot of this stuff kind of transparently right here uh, on the, in this interview. And so I'm excited for story honest to hear this. I'm excited for you to hear it uh, since he was one of your favorite speakers yeah. crushed it on stage at Story mm-hmm. with some amazing spoken word and then also an incredible talk about storytelling and creativity. Um, and 
he does more spoken word in this interview that hasn't been heard by the story audience So here we go. Let's roll this interview with poet, now blues artist, amazing communicator and speaker, storyteller, Micah Bourdais. All right, you guys, I'm so excited to be sitting down with my buddy Micah. Uh, You guys heard him, for those of you that were at Story 2016. Totally, totally crushed it on stage, man. Thanks so much for being there. Oh, thanks for having me. And uh, now you're foraying into music. Indeed. (laughs) He brought his uh, new album over to me tonight. Can't wait to hear it. The rest of it, I've heard pieces of it online, so that's pretty sweet. Uh, But I want to jump in with a little bit of backstory here. And I don't even know... I. We've been friends for a while, but I don't even know if I know the full backstory. Let's put, actually, I was going to say let's put music on a hold, but it actually started with music. We just talked about that. Yeah. How did you get into spoken word? How did you become a poet? Yeah, so uh, I started rapping my freshman year at college, and I did that for two years. Um, But I didn't think of myself as a a writer or a poet, because in my head, I wasn't writing, I was rapping. Uh, Even though you have to write rap lyrics, just it didn't connect, because I didn't see rapping because of kind of cultural stereotypes against hip-hop I didn't see it as creative writing or poetry I was like oh you're just rapping it's something you did on the side but uh my junior year at college uh I was actually home for the summer it was the summer before my junior year one of my homies invited me to this event that's still going on in LA every Tuesday night it's called the Poetry Lounge and it is a spoken word open mic and then once a month they do a poetry slam but I went just as an observer and I saw kids my age standing up in a room full of people though, people they don't even know and sharing poetry about the most personal things. And it was so crazy to me because so many things that were said from the stage, I had felt, I had experienced. But when I experienced those emotions or those thoughts, I felt like I was the only person in the world who must have ever felt that way. Mm-hmm. And then to stand up in a room full of strangers where people I've never even talked to are expressing things similar to what I thought I was alone in, it just really inspired me. And so that night I thought, man, if I can be so encouraged and feel so connected by other people's um, transparency, like who might I be able to help if I was honest about my story and some of the things that I've been through. So I was really motivated that night to, to not just take from open mics, but participate in that community and be vulnerable and hope that other people can be encouraged by the things I had to share. And how old were you at that point? I was 20. Okay. Yeah. And what were you doing at the time? I was in college not knowing what I was doing. (laughs) (laughs) I went to college because you're supposed to go to college, you know, but I definitely was like, I was a communications major, but I had no plans of pursuing any type of career in creative writing. I was just like, I'm in school, whatever. I don't don't know who I am. Yeah. (laughs) And it was like like religious school of some kind? Yeah, I went to a Christian college. Um, So I studied... uh, Theology and communications. So I was a radio major, actually had a radio emphasis. Used to have a, a hip-hop show on our school radio station. Oh, that's cool. It was fun. Yeah. That's awesome. Was was there any sort of like spiritual undertone of that first night that you went to? Well, it, it wasn't really in the sense of it was a very open environment. Um, like what were these people venting about? Yeah, that was the thing. I, I definitely think they were talking about spiritual things, even if they wouldn't use that language, Um, just they were talking about their spiritual wounds, and uh, uh, there was a lot of pain being expressed, and that was, that was something that also motivated me, because I admired the transparency, I I had been in very few contexts where people were that honest, but after a while, both at the end of that night, and when I started going to more open mics, there was this, this feeling that it was like, Everyone was praising the vulnerability, but they, there was nothing else after that. And, and, and I thought to myself, it just feels like people are commiserating. Mm-hmm. Like, life sucks, but it's better since it sucks for all of us. Mm-hmm. And, and they were just praising that. And I thought, it's helpful to get things off your chest, but there has to be more than that. And as a person of faith, I, I personally believe there is more than that. It's, we can do more than just vent. If all we're doing is venting, uh, we're still going to be, be empty, you know. Uh, and so that was something that I, said, uh, that I thought, is it possible to be this real and this vulnerable about life, but also have hope um, and also present something else, some type of 
um, life after the pain and after the, the death that we experience in a lot of ways. Yeah, that's amazing. I, I'm curious your thoughts on just so many of the different art forms that you're involved in mm-hmm. have ties to spirituality of some mm-hmm. form. Uh, it's like the foundation of a lot of what that art was born out of. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, in leading, leading a community like Story, Every now and then I'll take a little bit of flack. Uh, just, you know, even the conference this year, there's, it wasn't many at all, but, you know, there's a couple people that are like, there's a lot of speakers up there that, like, talk about, you know, their faith or their religion or their worldview. And I'm like, because we're talking about art and creativity. And, oh, yeah. and like, I, I don't intentionally put anyone up there or keep someone off of the stage because of their worldview. That's mm-hmm. what story is. But at the same time, like I can't ask them to keep that as a part of themselves because a lot of them feel that the creative process is immensely spiritual. Oh, um, yeah. How how would what would you say about that idea? Especially thinking back to the history of what things like poetry and hip hop were born out of. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, even if you don't associate with any particular religion or even don't believe in God, when it comes to creativity, it's most people understand often our creative expressions, our creations are, are coming out of our innermost being, our, our heart, our soul, our love, our, our whatever that is. And so when you're talking about these kind of deep emotions uh, and creating from that, there's, it's impossible to not have some type of spiritual undertones or overtones um, and then what art has been throughout human history in different societies you know often many different expressions of religious faith used uh, story and poetry and song um, to worship or to pass down narratives um, and or to teach moral lessons and proverbs and they would make these ideas rhyme or or put them in some type of poetic form so they're easier to memorize so i think when you look at it it's it's kind of inextricable um the spiritual aspect of creating um and and i don't think that's a bad thing um i think it's wonderful for me in my experience with open mics of people who otherwise would never have any interest in hearing someone else's worldview, for example. Um, I've never been to a mosque, but I've been to open mics where Islamic poets get up and talk about their life and their experience and their faith from their worldview. And it's beautiful because I'm able to learn, even though I've never been been to a mosque and never been invited to a mosque. But in the same way, an atheist will get up and share a poem from their perspective, and a Christian will get up and share a poem from their perspective, and we're all listening to each other because we're not preaching at each other. We're just expressing what we believe through this art form that we all love, and, mm-hmm. and I think that's really cool. That's what I love about art as yeah. well. I love about stories. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's great. Knowing, knowing that that's what motivates a lot of your art. That's what it pours out of. Yeah. Uh, you got a piece you want to do for us? Because I still have a lot of stuff I want to talk about. Oh, for but sure. But there's a lot of people listening right now going, you got a poet on the podcast. Like, I want to hear some of his poetry. Yeah, for you sure. You pick. I've got, obviously, like, so many pieces that you've <laughs> written that I love. I could never pick just one, but I'll let you pick one. Man, I appreciate it. Well, we'll, we'll start out with this one. Maybe I'll do another one later. But this, right. this poem is titled Freak Show. Never dismiss the visions of madmen. Wisdom can be gathered from anyone who sees what others cannot. Drunk men tell no tales. Poets cannot lie. Poets cannot lie because we do not divide fact from fiction. There's often more truth in our fantasy worlds and metaphors than human courts where liars swear to speak honestly in the name of laws they break, in the name of gods they disobey. The prayers of the proud will never reach heaven. But God hears the slurred words of the stumbling prophets, and all will be cursed who mock them. It is not an easy task to plead with the world, to grieve for the world, especially since God often speaks through those most broken. The picture we paint in our minds is a far cry from the reality of heaven. When the saints go marching in, it will not be a parade of the almost perfect. God does not reserve grace for those who only need a little bit. The healthy are in no need of a doctor. The healer 
is for the sick. Heaven will be a freak show. Promiscuous young men will embrace the virgin priests who molested them, and their hearts will both be pure. How amazing is grace. The street corner preacher will be greeted by thousands of people she thought were not listening. Thank you for enduring the times we mocked you. Your sidewalk sermons are why we know God. How amazing is grace. Aborted children will tug the spotless robes of young women and say, hello, mother. I'm so glad to finally meet you. The former master will see the lashed back of his no longer slave and say, you taught me the love of the savior. The suicide bomber who prayed for forgiveness during the millisecond between pressing the detonator and standing before the throne of God. The guilty thief hanging next to Jesus on the cross. The madman who spoke to invisible beings will stand between Michael and Gabriel with a grin as wide as an angel's wingspan and say, I knew I wasn't crazy. The missus and the mistress, the victim and the rapist, the foreign and the racist, the bullies and the geeks. All those who somewhere along the way believed, whose sins were forgiven and strength was given to love their enemies. So many we swore, there is no way in hell we would see them in heaven. But they will be there. We will be there with a song on our lips and our eyes full of faith. And we'll sing how amazing is grace. Dude, you're so gifted, man. Thanks, man. Oh, gosh, it's, it's so good. I just I want to ask you to just sit and do like three or four more pieces <laughs> over and over and over again in a row. I, it's so hard to just even keep talking after stuff like that because it impacts you so deeply. Thank you for what you do. Oh, um, for sure. And thank you for expressing yourself and sharing your art with the world, man. Yeah. Um, you know, speaking to you guys out there listening, Mike has been kind of a good source of, for lack of better words, advice. I'm not as good with words that he is, but over the last you know year while I've been planning story and trying to figure out how do we make this community more diverse, he's been kind of my go-to going, help me understand all these people talking about white privilege. What does that mean? I, I'm not, I'm, I'm willing to confess that I don't think that I don't have it or that I do have it because I don't even know and understand fully what it is. Mm -hmm. Let's spend a few minutes just talking about some of that stuff. We, we devoted you know one of the sessions right out of the gate this year uh, to this, this conversation and the role that maybe the creative community might play in restoring order, especially among some of the race conversations going on in America. Mm -hmm. um, start, because a lot of people weren't there, they weren't attending, so for those listening, uh, you told me a story, just a one small, one of many stories of, of an experience that you had recently that kind of opened my eyes to my own white privilege as yeah. a white dude living in America. Yeah. You were recording at a buddy's house, working on your new blues album, right? Yeah, yeah. So, <clears throat> um, yeah, uh, I was uh, had an appointment to meet with my producer, and he lives um, in a, it wasn't a super fancy neighborhood, but predominantly white neighborhood. We were going to meet at 10 in the morning, but I got there a little early, and he was still asleep. It was about 9.40. So I just parked my car in this neighborhood, and I was just waiting for him to wake up. I'm on my phone, checking Facebook, reading emails. Um, and about 10, 15 minutes later, uh, a police officer came up to the window of my car with his hand on his gun. And he, he, he yelled at me. He says, don't reach for it, but do you have your ID? And I was like, uh, yes. <laughs> and he just starts asking me all these questions. And, and I'm like, excuse me, what is the problem? <laughs> like, what is going yeah. on? You know, and he says, well, we got a phone call saying someone suspicious looking had been sitting in their car for over an hour, ducking every time someone walked by. You know, and that wasn't true because I was only there for about 20 minutes and I never ducked once. And I don't know what you mean by suspicious looking, but I think I have an idea, yeah. you know. And so what I tell people, like, when it comes to white privilege, you know, it's not just, um, it's not saying that everywhere in every situation white people are treated better than black folks, but it's saying, you know, I have to constantly be aware of how I'm perceived because of stereotypes. Um, white folks can sit in their car in a nice neighborhood and not think twice. When I am in certain neighborhoods where I know I'm not expected to be, I have to think about the fact that someone might feel threatened by me just being myself. 
you know, and, and that is a hard and a frustrating thing, especially, you know, when I try to live my life, um, a life full of love, right? But to know that before people even say a word to me, they're afraid. As a young black male, I am the scariest thing in American culture. Like, I'm what people fear. And that is not easy to accept. And at different points in my life, I've dealt with it in different ways. When I was younger, I just embraced it because I was like, well, folks are going to be afraid of me anyway. So I was never in nobody's gang, but I grew up around gang culture in Long Beach, and, and I used to it made me feel powerful. I'm like, well, if people are going to hate me and make bad assumptions about me, at least I can have some sense of, of power because they're afraid. It felt like respect, but it wasn't really respect. But I, when I was younger, okay, fine. They're going to think this about me no matter who I am, so I might as well you know, put on a grimace on my face and, and walk into a room and look really intimidating and, and watch all the white people get scared. Like That used to make <laughs> me feel happy. I was like, I know I ain't finna hurt y'all, but it's like it makes me feel powerful seeing you fear me because, honestly, you was doing it before anyway, so why don't I just kind of play it up? Yeah. Um, which obviously was an uh, immature and unhealthy way of dealing with those stereotypes I was facing. But um, yeah, it's just a weird feeling, you know, to know that you have so much love in your heart and you want to connect with people and people think the exact opposite about you all the time. And people think you're threatening just by being there, you know? Yeah. So, so would you say my white privilege is something that I'm, I'm guilty of or I, I'm guilty if I don't recognize it? Yeah, I don't think like white what's your, are, what's your advice like, on dealing with that with your two white friends? Yeah, I don't think white people are guilty of having white privilege. I think they just do. You know, guilty implies you did something wrong. If you're born in America, you have as a white person, you have white privilege. You ain't done nothing yet, but you have that privilege. You know what I'm saying? And to me, it's just a reality that if you acknowledge it, it can be a good thing. In the sense of, yeah. not, it's not that it's good that it exists, but once you acknowledge the power and the influence you have, you can leverage it to bring about justice. To bring about, if you know, for example, in one situation that someone's going to think something negative about me or positive about you, or they'll, they'll listen to you before they listen to me, then you can use your voice um, to combat that and, or give me opportunity. Like, oh, and, and, and so I do that in, in all, a lot of different ways because in other contexts, I might have privilege. You know, if I'm, I'm in a group of, of black folks and I got someone who's not black coming around, I know that I'm going to be more trusted automatically than, say, the non-black person. And so if I want to introduce my friend, I say, yo, he's, he's with me. Now, they, they could have just talked to themselves and realized they were a great dude. Sure. But if I use my black privilege in this black context to say, <laughs> hey, you know, like understand like this dude is down you know um and so i don't know i i i don't want i don't want white folks to walk around feeling guilty for something that they had no choice in which is the color of their skin i just don't know why we're being you know defensive about it you know yeah. and when 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 black or when white privilege first started being discussed there was this especially on social media like especially networks like facebook there was this yeah. instant defensiveness like what are you talking about we're not guilty of this and i think there was this misunderstanding in their yeah. minds of like it's not something that someone is accusing you of being guilty of. Mm -hmm. It's just establishing an understanding and a reality that something exists. Totally. So, like, it doesn't mean that I need to walk around feeling feeling convicted about my white privilege, yeah. but maybe I should be convicted by how I don't leverage it for, yeah. you know, playing a redemptive role in our culture. Absolutely, and yeah. speaking out against it. Yeah. yeah. So obviously, your your uh, your art form. <laughs> And uh, a lot of minorities obviously are using art to express those frustrations that have that have come out of racism. Mm -hmm. um, how do you see how do you see some of that playing a role? Uh, you know, I think back to even even the talk that Nicholas gave from mm -hmm. Disney Imagineering. Like he's obviously there's so much art that's being born out of him. Yeah. Um, and people are talking about it. You know, yeah. He's been on CNN and a bunch of other places, and yeah, people are asking to publish his art in books. Yeah. So. Does that give you any hope, seeing your art, his art, other art that's coming out of the black community? Is it starting conversations that you've seen are positive? Yeah, absolutely. I think historically in, in American history, 
Um, one of the things I am most proud of as an African-American is the way that we have constantly sung our way through our pain, created mm -hmm. our way through from, from black gospel music to blues music to jazz to hip-hop to, like, we just, in each generation, keep kind of reinventing or inventing ways to talk about this struggle and this experience we're having, um, and not just to express it, but it gives us hope, you know? And so I, I love blues music, right? Like, it's, it's such a paradox because it's often about poverty, about being betrayed or poor or lost or my baby left me. And yet, when you listen to it, it just makes it feel so good, right? <laughs> you know, you're like, oh, da, 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 da. Dude, I listen to blues a lot, yeah. but especially, right. like, back my back deck when the weather's nice in Nashville, it's yeah. like... You know, Kate gives me, my wife, she gives me a hard time every now and then because I'm like, I've got this Pandora blues station that I just love yeah. and I just play it all the time. Yeah. She's like, how do you listen to this all day long? Like, <laughs> Dude, it just makes me feel amazing. <laughs> right. And it's like, but a lot of the stories being told are stories of folks yeah. in poverty and of, yeah. of folks hurting, but we're singing our way through that pain. And so I, I really, um, I, both as a writer and a spoken word poet and now with the latest project I do being a blues project, I really am thankful to... Um, come from that tradition and be a part of it and contribute to it. Um, but I, I think it just speaks of the resilience of, of the spirit of black folk, you know, um, like no matter what, like we were singing, we were singing in, in the fields, picking cotton. Uh, we, and then we, and everything we faced, we, we kept singing and, um, and not in a, you know, dance monkey dance sense, but in a way that art, encouraged us when the whole world, <laughs> it seemed, was against us. And we used song and storytelling and poetry to, to lift our spirits and to not give up. Um, and that is a beautiful thing to me. Uh, so I, I love that. I, I love that about, I think it's life. beautiful too. Yeah. yeah. I think it's not just a, you know, lamenting and lifting yeah. your spirits. I think it's also, it's oftentimes what sparks the conversation about what's next and how do we Absolutely. fix this kind of stuff. You know, I think, you know, my race and ethnicity is not always the best at that. You know, yeah. like I think, uh, white dudes love to get on, yeah. CNN and Fox News and argue about it or like pass a law and yeah. sometimes they need to go back into their studio and create some art and tell some stories yeah. and get the conversation started that way because it makes people feel something. Yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah, absolutely love it. What's your advice to just the story community in general? Do you have any any words of advice for them on because there's a lot of them out there listening because I, I know that because I've talked to so many of them especially after story a lot of people were like Thank you for making this a part of the conversation, and yeah. thanks for just going there right out of the gate on session two. We literally yeah. kicked off story, and then session two went straight there. And, and I think a lot of people were anticipating us having that conversation, but they weren't anticipating us having it so soon, mm -hmm. and they expressed gratitude. So what what would you say to them, the people who, who were saying, I'm raising my hand, I'm admitting that maybe there's some ignorance on this issue, I need to research a little bit a bit learn more about my white privilege or I want to tell some stories or create some art that contribute to this conversation. What do you say to the creative community? Yeah. Uh, specifically to the creative community. Um, I think a good way to get into this is through the things that we understand most and first and foremost being, being story and art. And so dive into some black art, really seek out those stories because in most of our education of anything, it's Eurocentric whether that's art or theology or whatever, um, if we're educated in America nine times out of ten, unless we were like a, you know, black history major, <laughs> you know, <laughs> most of our exposure, um, a lot of it comes from one community. And so read the stories. Um, I mean, I have specific suggestions, but also just discover yourself. But, like, I, I love autobiographies, um, and they are just folk stories. So there's the autobiography of Asada Shakur that I think is is an amazing story. It's entertaining, but also mm -hmm. um, educational. She was a Black Panther um, who got accused and convicted of killing a cop, but she maintained her innocence the whole time. So this is her side of the story. Um, there is a com comedian named Dick Gregory, and he has a autobiography called Nigger. That's just the title of the, of the book. And he just talks about growing up poor in the South and then becoming an entertainer and all the prejudice he faced. A compelling story. Hmm. Um, 
so yeah, I mean, those are just two two of my favorites that I've read recently. Um, but so yeah, just exp- step one would be just exposure, like yeah. expose yourself to expose yourself, those seek it, seek it out. Yeah, seek out stories and. Um, and, and when it comes to blues, I just have to mention because there's a couple, <laughs> couple songs particularly. Um, one of them really influenced a song on my project. But there's this um, guy named Sun House. My buddy told, showed me this song, and it's just so powerful. How something so simple. This song is just his voice and an offbeat clap, and it's called "Grinning in Your Face." And he just said, "Don't you mind people grinning in your face?" Don't mind people grinning in your face. Well, bear who this in mind. A true friend is hard to find. And don't you mind people grinning in your face. And then he just kind of keeps singing that and adds some verses. But it's just him and an offbeat clap. And it's just such a powerful story and song. And it's like, how can it feel so full when it's just a voice and a clap? But it's, it's amazing. But yeah, just hearing the story and the art, seeking out the story and the art of particularly the African-American community, I think will really uh, give you a different perspective. Yeah. You, so you said a phrase there twice that stood out to me. You said, seek it out. Why yeah. is it that we have to seek it out? Why is it not already in museums in front of our faces? Yeah. Uh, because of white privilege. <laughs> no, and, and, and that's the thing. It's, um, we, you know, I, just because of who holds the positions of power, whose voices are most respected. There's plenty of intelligent minority speakers and artists and whatever, but it is a lot harder for for those individuals to get opportunities to get their book published or their film made because they don't have the connections, they don't have the family wealth, they don't have the whatever, Um, And but we exist, right? Um, And so, I think, you know, there was a big thing, I don't know if it was like the Oscars or something this year, but, you know, where they were pushing like, you know, so often uh, black folks particularly, but minorities as a whole are excluded from some of these um, award shows in the highest, not because we're not talented, but because we don't get roles or there aren't roles that exist for us in these acting positions. It's always, you know, the white guy and the beautiful white woman who have the leading role and all of these things. And so... But, you know, there's independent minority filmmakers who are making films who do star us, you know, but they'll never be in your movie theater. But they exist if you seek it out. Um, And so I think... What do you say... Just sorry to interrupt you, but what do you say to the... the, Because I can hear a studio guy right now going, yeah, but the black community is not going to pay to come see that kind of film with the beautiful black male and the beautiful Mm -hmm. black female and that same kind of role. So all we're doing is making movies for what the market wants. Yeah, that's not true. I mean, we be so excited. <laughs> Black people started watching golf when Tiger Woods started golf. We started watching tennis when Serena Williams and, and Venus and Serena started playing tennis. If we see our people, we will be the first one. You know how many people showed up to vote for Obama who ain't never voted in their life? You know what I'm saying? Like, And that's the thing. It actually is good for business, too. It's not just like... Like, I guarantee you, if there's so many minorities in America, not just black folks, if, you know, Asians and Arabs and, and Latinos started seeing people who look like them in leading roles, you know, being the heroes, like, we already, we would show up, we would definitely show up. And, and a bit, be instead excited. of being like the thug or the Yeah, the instead of guy. just being a stereotypical yeah. role, you know, but in a role that's more honest to like, hey, we do all kind of stuff. We're part of of this nation's culture, we're here. And um, I, I think it'd be great for business. So I think it's whether you do it because it's the right thing to do or you value diversity, or you simply do it because you know you wanna make more money. I actually really do think that when you include more people, uh, a broader group of people will be excited. Obviously you'll have some who won't accept it, but you know, I, I've seen it time after time. Even this whole Luke Cage uproar thing you know, about um, this comic that has a pretty much all black cast. There are so many people who don't care about comic books at all. So many black folks who are watching that show because we want to support that. You know, that it's like, yo, I ain't never watched no nothing, no doc or series of of what but I wanna I wanna see it now. Is there a wide audience at all for that? Um oh. well I've seen are, a like lot are of, white people reading it or um you know I've I, I saw a lot of controversy about it on my Facebook newsfeed because folks were reacting to the fact that the majority of the actors were black. 
they're like, oh, it's like reverse racist because they didn't cast any white people. <laughs> you know, it is like, um, but um, I don't know. I've just seen a lot of buzz about it. But again, it's like folks who otherwise weren't interested in stuff like that are showing up and they're spending their money and they're engaging. You know? Yeah, I feel like I somewhat failed at making this past year's conference as diverse as I wanted it to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's so hard, man, because people take to people take to Twitter and they're just like, they see a ticket price for registration and they're just like, that's a lot of money for a lot of white people, you know? Yeah, yeah. And they don't, like, I invited, you know, like, I, f- I remember finding one list, just to be transparent, I found one list that somebody had curated online um, and it was like the top 50 female African-American TED speakers. Mm-hmm. And dude, I bet we emailed 30 of these women. We chose anyone that falls into a creative category that mm-hmm. we felt like could give a great talk at store. Emailed like 30 of them. We heard back from two. Mm-hmm. One was like, you know, 20 something thousand dollars we couldn't afford yeah. and one wasn't available. Obviously, like, there's no way to know for sure exactly why that was. Do you, what does your gut tell you? Why, why did they not respond to our request? Yeah. I mean, particularly with, it sounds like a list like that. And with prices like that, they're probably <laughs> highly sought out speakers, right? Um, but I mean, some of them were. Some of them weren't okay. even people who who speak for a living. It's like you're a school teacher or whatever gotcha. who, who runs an art class in an inner city school yeah, yeah. who happen to be asked to come do a TED Talk. And yeah. obviously after you do a TED Talk, you become yeah. more in demand. But these aren't people that are like professional speakers yeah, that, yeah. you know. I, I mean, I personally think it's relationship, you know, like not that it's ever hurts to try to, you know, cold call someone you don't know, especially if you think they have good things to say. But um, just within people involved in whatever event you're planning, like, for example, I'm not on any list like that in the sense of I'm not, I've been doing my thing for a while, but I'm not super well known, but we know each other, mm-hmm. you know, and it was like our personal relationship caused this thing to happen and it, it, it worked really well, right? Um, and I mean, I, at the end of the day, I think that is the solution for all things, whether we're planning events or just in our personal lives, we shed ourselves of our prejudices by having experiences and friendships with people from different cultures. Um, and I think, I mean, in that, <coughs> I, I appreciate the fact um, that you went through that trouble, even if it quote unquote didn't work and that you made an effort. And I think moving forward, you'll learn how to approach it differently, mm-hmm. you know, or, and also gain credibility from folks who came to this one and said, hey, actually, like, this conference did value this. They devoted a whole session. They had a great discussion. You know, so next time around, maybe people might be more receptive. But I know sometimes for me, personally, when I do get invited to events that I don't have a lot of personal connections to, um, I'm very weary of tokenism um, mm-hmm. because a lot of times events are just appeasing their conscience. Oh, yeah. We even talked you know, about that on yeah. the phone. Like you're, you're like, you can go to a conference website and they have like the one female speaker and the one black speaker. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like, cool. We just put them on the roster in the lineup. Yeah. And I, although in this current climate, I was very thankful that you invited me specifically to talk about issues of blackness. But often um, when we are invited, when we're the only speaker, it's exclusively that. Like, so there'll be a conference about all kind of like creative stuff or theological or philosophy or scientific things. But like every time the minority or the black person is invited, it's, oh, and they're going to talk about, um, you know, science and race, or they're going to talk about philosophy and race. And it's like, hey, like we can talk about that, of course, but like we also can just talk about things that we're good at. You know, I can talk about poetry and the creative process. Um, And so you feel like you did that a story this year? You got to talk about I, I something feel like other I was than just able, race Yeah, issues. I feel like I was able to talk about both. And I mean, particularly because of what has been burdening me recently, I wanted to talk about race. Um, so I was thankful for that opportunity. Um, but yeah, I think a lot of folks sometimes, when they get invitations from folks that they don't know, and it looks like maybe it's a run or predominantly white event, um, they don't want to be tokenized, you know? Yeah, yeah. I think too, a lot of times, you know, <laughs> event planners are guilty of, calling someone like you up and being like, hey, dude, you want to come do a couple poems? Yeah. Like, we got some speakers, and then you can be in between some of the speakers. Yeah. You know? Yeah, totally. Do you... I catch myself every now and then, too. Like, I... There's this way, because I'm a performer and a communicator yeah. for a living, there's this way that I speak. And when I hang out with my black friends, I, like, feel like I relax a little bit more. I start... <laughs> it's like I start talking differently, right? Yeah, yeah. Just because I'm trying to... Do you get that a lot for your white friends? 
Oh, oh yeah. They start like they notice. (laughs) It goes goes both ways, but yeah, I mean, it's one of those things where I I work really hard at my craft, my focus being spoken word. So I'm never offended when people want me to do that. But me particularly, because honestly, there are a lot of performers who do just want to perform and Mm -hmm. or just want to sing or just whatever, and that's cool. But me, I. I'm a communicator, you know. I got I got a lot to say, <laughs> so I like I appreciate the opportunity to to also speak, um, as well as perform and just kind of have this conversations, you know. Yeah, dude, yeah. I love that. Uh, well, in in closing, because I want I would love for you to do one more piece. Okay. Uh, I'll leave it up to you, uh, which one you want to do. Uh, there's there's one of the pieces you did at at Story. They can watch on the video if you don't want to do it here. <laughs> but one of my favorite poems that I've ever heard you do is. Um, I think you call it, but I love y'all for real. Is that what you call it? Oh yeah, I love y'all. Uh, for it's real. just so powerful. Uh, that's why I asked you to do that one in a story, and you did it at the local gathering here in LA. Yeah, um, I love the piece that you did that, that you worked on for Story this year, uh, oh, just yeah, about yeah. art and creativity in general. That was incredible. Uh, so many good stuff. But I'll, I'll let you, I'll let you pick a piece here at the end. Oh, okay. But bef- I want to be able to close with that. So before you start that final piece, yeah. knowing we aren't going to say anything else after that, yeah. anything else you want to share? Any final words to the story tribe, because man, we we've got you, we got your back. There's a lot of people out there that care about some of the stuff that you and your buddies are experiencing. And yeah, um, man, are, we're every time we get another story, another news headline about what's going on in the black community. Like for so many of us in in the story tribe, it's just it's heartbreaking. Yeah. Um. So know that the the door is always open. If there's ever any time you're one of our sources for information and guidance and helping us make sense of all this. For sure. Yeah, I mean, no, I would just reiterate, you know, read our stories. Start with books, uh, autobiographies, actual stories from black Americans, um, the ones I mentioned before. They're entertaining um, and they're educational. So, yeah, it was uh, one of them was called uh, Asada. It's just the autobiography of Asada Shakur, um, A-S-S-A-T-A. And then another one <coughs> was called Nigger by Dick Gregory. Um, and then another favorite of mine is My Bondage and My Freedom, which is the autobiography of Frederick Douglass. Amazing, amazing yeah. story. It sounds like books are a good source of inspiration for you. Yeah, as you well. know, I, yeah, I, I read a lot. I write more when, I, when I'm reading. Yeah. Oh, interesting. So. Any other, anything else you want to share about your creative process? Oh, man. I, well, yeah. For me, the creative process the creative process, not necessarily what I share, but when I'm creating and figuring it out, it is quantity over quality. It is, I try not to cut off any of my ideas. I write bad poems, bad songs. I still get them out, you know, because I just want to exercise that muscle. Um, And no matter how good of an artist you are, you know, for me, eight out of 10 poems I write are just going to be average or mediocre. So if I'm like too afraid to write bad poetry and I, I just try to only write when I feel it's going to be really good, I'm not going to have that much good stuff. You know, but if I write 10 poems, eight will be bad. But if I fearlessly create and write 100 poems, 80 of them will be bad, but 20 of them will be good. You know, and I just get all the ideas out. So I, and I try to be disciplined with just creating, creating, creating and exercising that muscle. And even the, even the pieces that I don't like at the end, I learn something from, you know, so... Yeah. Do you write every day? I don't. I wish I did. <laughs> at, <laughs> at different seasons. Um, in April, I believe, it's National Poetry Month, and you just, most poets do this 30 poems in 30 days thing, so really? I've done that for the last couple of years. So that's fun, but it's a challenge. But I try to write regularly. How do you know which ones are good? Do you know, or sometimes you're wrong and your friends surprise <laughs> you? Because you, you stand up and you're like, oh, this isn't my favorite, and this is the one they all freak out about? All the time. All the huh. time. Whether it's an album or just poems I'm reading at open mics, like, so often the ones that I think are just mediocre will get like really good responses. And then ones I'm like, man, this is good. People are like, yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's kind of unpredictable to see what, what resonates with people. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome, man. Uh, yeah. Let's close one cool. of your, one of your, uh, one oh, of your favorites, one that you love oh. or, or one that might, that might fit well with, the context of some of the stuff we've been talking about. Totally up to you. Yeah. How do you want to close this out? I, I and kinda, set it up for us a little bit. Yeah, yeah, no, totally. I kind of want to do this poem. I just don't know if I'll completely remember it. <laughs> Is that a problem? Do you, like, do you ever well, forget stuff on stage? Oh, all the time. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm going to try it. 
if I forget it halfway through, I'm gonna switch to another one. <laughs> but, but we um, can we'll just cut edit. Yeah, it yeah. Okay, cool. <laughs> <laughs> um, this this poem, it's uh, it's called "There Goes the Neighborhood," and I when I first moved back to California, I grew up here, but I moved away for college. When I first moved back, I moved in uh, to an apartment, and I had two roommates, and they were both white. And we were we were homies. We got along great. Um, but we we went to lunch one time, and we had a pretty bad experience. And so this poem comes from that experience. I'm going to lunch with my roommates. It's called There Goes the Neighborhood. Would you like some more water? Nah, I'm good. That's not what your parole officer said. Did you register when you moved into the neighborhood? I couldn't decide if he was a cold racist asking a racist question or a friendly racist telling a racist joke. Either way, I was not amused. But I laughed. As the awkward chuckle passed through my lips, it tasted like the Eucharist, like blood in my mouth. My stomach churned as I imagined it would if I ate human flesh. I felt like Judas and Christ, betraying myself, then hanging in silence as I'm crucified. I wanted to prove him wrong. I wanted to stand up and list off my credentials in words with more syllables than his simple mind could take. I wanted to prove him right. I wanted to stand up and fire off hyphenated profanities, inventing new conjugations for four-letter words like the dumbest nigga he done ever heard. I wanted to prove him wrong. I wanted to leave and come back with the black elite, a fleet of the sharpest, darkest intellectuals he's ever seen, leaving tips large enough to buy out this business twice over. I wanted to prove him right. I wanted to leave and come back with thugs and hood rats with chains, guns, and bats burn this place to ash. But what did I do? I laughed, then sat there silently, then ran home and wrote poetry, then screamed it out like I'm not a coward. Like I didn't cry in front of my computer screen. Like I wasn't waiting for my two white friends to speak up for me. Like I did something. Like I stood up for myself. Like I fought a revolution. Like it wasn't funny. Like I didn't laugh. But I did. And it tasted like the Eucharist. Like blood in my mouth. And I swallowed it. Dude, thank you. Yeah, for sure. I love this interview. I'm so glad you recorded this conversation. Oh, man, I think one of my favorite parts of the interview was towards the end when Micah was talking about his creative process and how he goes into it thinking about quantity over the quality of his work. And he said something like eight out of 10 of his poems are just mediocre at best. Um, and Which that is kind of counterintuitive. Like naturally, I think yeah. we, because I use the excuse, well, it's not ready yet, so I'm not going to write it yet. Totally. Or that idea isn't fully worked out in my head, so I'm not going to sit down and do the work. Totally. I love his wisdom about writing about even when you think it's not going to be very good. You never know if it's going to be good if it's not on the page and you can't see it and you don't change that draft and make it better over time that's when the good stuff happens and I also thought it was really interesting too that the poems that he thinks are amazing are going to be like his best piece of work are often the poems that people don't really look at the same way and they kind of look at other poems he's like oh I don't I didn't know this was going to be so like big for other people so yeah. I don't know you never know like what is really going to connect with people yeah I, and speaking of that, the thing that connected with me most is, and this just goes to prove why stories are so awesome, why art is so great. My favorite part was he did the he did a piece that he called Freak Show. Um, and I remember sitting there going, I love listening to you speak to me. I love listening to you talk and share your thoughts. But when you take all those things and put them in the form of art, when I hear you express yourself through poetry, it like takes it to another level. It's just something amazing about instead of trying to make a point, create a piece of art, tell someone an amazing story, mm. and somehow 
you don't have to point your finger at them quite as much. Yeah, absolutely. Does that make sense? I think that's true. It makes me think about like parables and like wise old tales and stuff like that. The stories that have been carried on for ages. Yeah. There's a reason why they've been carried on for ages. They hold so much power. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's why I love, man, he's so talented and I never Mm -hmm. know what to say. You you could probably hear me hesitate a little bit after each time he did a poem (laughs) because he would finish the last word and I'm like, I don't even know what to say to you right now sure. other than how awesome you are. Yeah. That was incredible. I'm soaking in yeah. your glory right now. <laughs> yeah, Mike has been so amazing. Uh, as I said earlier before the interview, you know, he's just been a gracious friend to me um, just through the whole last year of just the craziness that's been going on. And, you know, that's, I, need to, I need to stop saying it like that. I keep catching myself saying over the last year, all this stuff that's happening, like, it's not like all of a sudden it has started happening. It's just all of a sudden we've become more aware of the fact that it's happening, whether it's because of social media or the fact that everyone's carrying around a cell phone in their pocket with a video camera on it. This stuff has been happening, you know, for years and years and years. Yeah. It's just all of a sudden our awareness of it is new, and mm-hmm. that's why it's just now impacting us, probably in the way that it should have been impacting us a long time ago. So I love being Micah's friend. I love that Micah is a friend of story. And you guys will want to check out some more of his work. So check out his website. Uh, he did just release that blues album, which the cover is amazing. Uh, I was just showing it to Sammy. The cover is absolutely incredible. Uh, what's it called? It's called No, no U- Ugly Babies. No Ugly Babies. It's a blues That's, album. It is a blues album. Yeah. Uh, I love that. I love the conversation we had about blues, too. It's just the history I of did, blues. yeah. Yeah, yeah I did, too. So you can learn all about Micah at micahbornay.com. Uh, his last name is spelled not the way that it sounds, Borne. It's got an S at the end of it. Mm. So it's just B-O-U-R-N-E-S, MicahBorne.com. He's Micah Borne on all the socials as well. Just check him out online. Show him some love. He's an incredible guy, incredible, incredible guy. Thank you guys so much for listening to this week's episode of the Story Podcast. As always, uh, we appreciate your time. Thanks for listening to these conversations. We hope they're meaningful to you. Hope they inspire you to keep telling amazing stories and doing your most creative work. We'll talk to you next time.